To Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, January 6, 2019. 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning, Michael. Also, as well as uh, all your other credits, you, you are quite the interviewer and moderator, and uh, you have something coming up with Santino Fontana, who uh, is going to be coming on the Broadway uh, radar screens very soon now, isn't he? Yes, and I like the way you say his name. See, <laughs> that's one thing I want to ask him about is uh, the, the Italianness of his name. I find that so intriguing. I haven't researched that yet. Uh, but yeah, on Tuesday, January 15th at 6 p.m. at Ripley Greer, I'm going to be moderating a, a, a discussion with Santino and a Q&A. And it's primarily for Drama Desk members, but uh, I, I, you know, I imagine we'll have some other room available. So if that is so, we'll announce it next Sunday and, and give you a way to uh, make reservations for that because Santino is in one of the uh, one of the many highly anticipated spring openings. Uh, he is the lead in Tootsie, the musical. And uh, I'm sure that, you know, if only for that, aside from all his other credits, uh, people will will want to hear what he has to say. He's also uh, created a um, uh, a program uh, coming up at the Lyrics and Lyricists series at the 92nd Street Y uh, called We'll Have Manhattan. uh, And it's a tribute to Rogers and Hart. Um, and in addition to being in the cast, he, he had the idea for this and he conceived it and I guess co-wrote it and created it. Uh, so he's, he's quite the Renaissance person. And uh, both of these items, I think, are certainly to be looked forward to so we can hear what he has to say about them. Oh, and just parenthetically, I, I was rewatching Tootsie yesterday uh, a little bit, you know, as, as prep. Um, and I had not seen it since it came out in 1982, I believe. And, you know, it's uh, um, among uh, – Aside from everything else that's so interesting about it, it's it, well, it, it it really holds up really well, I think, uh, as far as a comedy 
and a movie. And it uh, fortunately, I don't I don't think the gender politics are are outdated, uh, which is, uh, you know, certainly good for the musical. Um, uh, that that's that's a really interesting thing about it. But also the fi- the whole final scene was shot on 42nd Street uh, between 10th and 9th. And this was before, of course, the, the, the huge renovation of that area. So you can see some of the old theater row. Uh, the Lion Theater, you can see there, and uh, and other structures that are no longer there. And uh, Jessica Lang and Dustin Hoffman walk basically from 10th Avenue to 9th Avenue, and and the camera follows them that whole way. So it's just a little uh, great little time capsule of that that block that has undergone such a tremendous revitalization, largely due to the 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 new theaters on it. Hmm. So that is uh, Tuesday, January 15th, 6 p.m. at Ripley Greer. It's a Drama Desk event. Uh, so uh, will people outside of Drama Desk be able to partake? Yeah, as I said, if we, if we if just assuming we have any room left. Uh, so we'll, I'll know that by next week and I'll give further details. All right. So uh, next week, we're going to have to include that in our uh, This Week on Broadway live from BroadwayCon. So you have to remind me next week uh, if we have to make this announcement to the listeners, because uh, all of us plus uh, a handful of others are going to be at BroadwayCon next Saturday, January 12th, uh, 11.15 a.m. in the Sutton Center Room. If you are planning to come, please let uh, one of us know and, uh, and say hello to us before, during, after, you know. Uh, and uh, we hope to record the session and release it on Sunday as a regular This Week on Broadway um, with some extra friends and guests on it as well uh, for those who can't make it uh, to BroadwayCon. Let's uh, do a quick review here. Peter, you got to see a uh, Yiddish version of Waiting for Godot or Gado, as uh, some people say. Uh, how do you say Godot or Gado in Yiddish? Uh, either way, I guess uh, it's uh, a terrific production down at uh, the 14th Street Y. David Brandelbaum is the artistic director of uh, the New Yiddish Rep, and he's in it as well. He plays Estragon, uh, and uh, it's uh, it's quite nice to see him do it because um, he's uh, not a particularly young man, and uh, it really adds more poignance to the, what's going on because. It seems like he's been waiting for a long time, a long time indeed. And, um, you know, this is a very good way to see this play. It's a play that confounds a lot of people. Um, it's certainly not a boulevard comedy, though there's plenty of laughter in it. And the audience at the 14th Street uh, Y had a wonderful time, laughed quite a bit at the absurdities that um, are run rampant through Samuel Beckett's play. But for those who are a little flummoxed by it, something occurred to me. It does <laughs> help when you can read the words. So um, if indeed you're a little um, intimidated by Waiting for Godot or the idea of Waiting for Godot, the idea of reading it really does help you along and helps you to understand uh, a good deal of what's uh, there. So uh, what's really nice is that um, Eli Rosen, who plays Vladimir, really has the feeling of a Bush Bell comic, and that really helps the play a great deal as well. It is funny to hear uh, the line where Gogo compares himself to Christ, 
I mean, that's in the play, Jesus Christ. And, you know, I mean, we are talking about Yiddish, so it's sort of uh, a little strange to hear, to uh, to see that happen. Um, and uh, the other two gentlemen uh, playing the parts of uh, Potso and Lucky are really very effective as well. Um, Lucky, of course, uh, Richard Sodak, who has that rat-a-tat monologue, um, does extraordinarily well by it, and he's very limber as well. And, um, and Potso, who... Uh, has a great deal of authority um, and will certainly get his comeuppance in Act Two. Uh, is um, wonderfully played by Jerry Sandler. So, so this is a very worthwhile production. I truly think that um, if you've been afraid of waiting for Godot, now's the time to go and uh, really experience. And don't be surprised if you laugh a great deal. By the way, um, this now ties by record for foreign language productions because I have seen Chicago in Japanese as well as Dutch, uh, and of course English, and uh, Waiting for Gundot, I have now seen in uh, both Dutch and Yiddish, as well as, of course, English. So um, so we'll see if any uh, either one of those can um, get ahead in the next few years as I go globetrotting, looking for theater here, there, and everywhere, as uh, I am wont to do. So um, a little personal statistic there. But um, if you have only one waiting for Godot under your belt <laughs> in the language, here's a good chance to get a second one in as well. Well, I think it's great that we seem to be having this renaissance of Yiddish theater. Oh, I agree. In in New York. I mean, of course, the, the tremendously successful Yiddish fiddler on the roof, uh, this Gado or Gado you're talking mm-hmm. about. What didn't we not long ago have a, a death of a salesman in Yiddish? Yeah, it was terrific too. Abby Hoffman was wonderful, wonderful. And you know, it's funny. I, I look, I looked it up because I wasn't sure. Uh, I, I, I had it in my head that maybe Yiddish is considered to be a dying language, but this is what I found. It says prior to the Holocaust, there were eleven to thirteen million speakers of Yiddish among seventeen million Jews worldwide. Eighty-five percent of the approximately six million Jews who died in the Holocaust were Yiddish speakers, leading to a massive decline in the use of the language. A sim- Assimilation following World War II, immigration to Israel uh, and immigration to Israel further decreased the use of Yiddish among both survivors and Yiddish speakers from other countries, such as in the Americas. However, the number of speakers is increasing in Hasidic communities. So isn't that interesting? Well, I'll tell you, when people say to me, if there were a time machine, what would you go back and um, and see? Um, I often mention uh, The Cradle of Rock's opening night, which is uh, definitely my uh, first choice. Um, I also would have liked to have um, been there for um, Isabel Stevenson appearing in the Earl Carroll Vanities. Uh, that would have been something. <laughs> I always talk about seeing the first performance ever of Harvey before the news got out that Harvey was a rabbit because I, you know, uh. <laughs> people would assume he's talking to a guy. <laughs> but I always mention, too, seeing a Yiddish show on Second Avenue. And the reason has a great deal to do with the fact that um, in those days, people like Boris Tomaszewski and Jacob Adler. Um, I think uh, I sh- maybe I shouldn't indict these guys, but anyway, there was a lot of fooling around with uh, text uh, back then. I know that there was a Romeo and Juliet that had a happy ending, um, <laughs> but um, I, I, I would like to have seen what went on in Second Avenue when there used to be a ton of Yiddish theaters down there, mm. um, and uh, that would have been great fun uh, to see. Uh, 
what happened, of course, those theaters didn't offer any translations because, of course, the, the audience were knew Yiddish uh, quite well and didn't have to uh, worry about what was uh, being said. They knew exactly what was being said. So um, it, it is nice to have this uh, renaissance, tiny as it may be, but uh, it would have been uh, great fun to um, see those, and now it's great fun to see these. So this is a new new Yiddish rep, and uh, we also talked about their production of God of Vengeance in uh, August of last year. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, that's right. Uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, they just did an Awakened Sing. I'm not sure. Did we? Well, the review? Awakened Sing was terrific. Yeah. Well, did we review the way Awakened Sing? I don't recall. Don't but, remember, but I can yeah. see it, and it was very, very good. Uh, one of my dearest friends thought it was the best thing he had seen that entire year, and um, also there was a rhinoceros too done um on 42nd street uh mm. at the castillo center uh so uh yeah they're they're cropping up and um it's very nice to have a renaissance you know i mean maybe this is what we should be calling the fabulous invalid now um mm-hmm. because uh they they are uh, making it happen so uh last week we talked about the best of 2018 and as happens with so many lists uh, after we finished recording, we're like, oh, oh, there was that one more thing that we didn't talk about. So, uh, Michael, let me open up the floor to you to say, is there anything you wanted to, uh, in retrospect, include? Well, the one I noticed was the Waverly Gallery and Elaine May. Uh, I, I almost mentioned it several times, and then it was one of those things where we wound up talking about something else, and, and I didn't get back to it. And I know that all three of us uh, you know, certainly agree that it was one of the highlights of the year um, to have Elaine May to come back to Broadway after de- decades. Uh, and in that in that incredible role, in that beautiful play by Kenneth Lonergan and and really a wonderful production. Uh, you you have until January twenty seventh uh, to see it. It's still with us, so so please do get there. Uh, it, it, aside from Elaine May, you have an amazing cast, including Joan Allen, David Cromer, and Lucas Hedges, who is now I, I think it's fair to say a, a bona fide movie star. Um, so what you know what what's not to like about any of that? It's it's really amazing, and I'm, I'm sorry we missed it, but obviously it's. Uh, something that we have acknowledged before as a real major highlight of the theatrical year. Especially because a lot of people were very wary that she was going to be able to do it at all. I mean, she's no kid. She's definitely an octogenarian and perhaps even closer now to being a nonagenarian. And uh, everybody was saying, yeah, you better go the first preview. You know, she's Mm. not going to be in it for long, you know, and look at it. And especially since it's such a tough part, because after all, uh, many of her lines don't, you should pardon the expression, make sense, because she's a woman who's really suffering from uh, senility, if not Alzheimer's, and um, those words are hard to put together under those circumstances. Yes. So, uh, yeah, last week's um, episode, uh, when we talked about the best of 2018, we got lots of wonderful feedback on it, uh, and certainly, um, as we acknowledge, we, we, you know, we we can't remember everything, but there were uh, so many good things uh, that we mentioned last week. If you missed it, I encourage you to get back and uh, and take a listen to it again because it not only was it uh, a great recap of 2018, it also it, it jarred a lot of really wonderful memories for me just listening back to the episode. 
And we certainly made the point that has been made by many others that it was a great, great year for plays. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so, so healthy uh, mm-hmm. for, for mm-hmm. the theater to have because we've had some pretty lean years as far as successful productions of non-musicals on Broadway. Uh, and to have Network and the Waverly Gallery and uh, Lifespan of a Fact and American Son, uh, et cetera, I, I think that's just... Very cool. Man, To Kill a Mockingbird. Very Man. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Revolving cycles. Yeah. Fabulation, uh, though it's a revival, but it's nice to see it for those of us who missed it the first time around. So, yeah, quite a year. Yeah. And we pointed out a number of uh, up and comers, um, especially Peter pointed out some some children that were that were yeah. carry, carrying the show. Uh, that we have to keep our eyes on because uh, yeah. we have a lot, a lot of uh, a lot of young talent coming through the ranks, and uh, and you you never know where we're going to see them next. You know that young Stocker Channing up at uh, <laughs> up at Harvard that uh, or Dustin Hoffman was it up that you saw up at Harvard? Oh yeah, oh yeah, uh, John Lithgow, Tommy Lee Jones. I saw uh, all of them when they uh, were uh, still in school. So uh, not Dustin Hoffman; he was the theater company of Boston. But the rest of them were students at Harvard, and um, and uh, you know when eBay started, I thought <laughs> I'd try to see what happens. You know, <laughs> and my uh, program for Coriolanus with Tommy Lee Jones, a piece of paper folded over got one hundred fifty-seven dollars and fifty cents. I mean, so uh, there are some Tommy Lee Jones fans out there, as I'll tell you. Um, so uh, um, yeah, those were good times, and uh, and it's happening again. Yes, indeed. I mean, certainly my visits to Cincinnati over the last twenty plus years have um, allowed me to see Ashley Brown and Betsy Wolf and Christy Altamar and um, so many others uh, who have done so extraordinarily well uh, in on Broadway. So it's very nice. Mm-hmm. So uh, we talked about a lot of uh, onstage things last week. Let's talk about uh, how we can bring the stage home to our ears. Uh, Michael, what were some of your uh, favorite recordings of 2018? Well, there were several, but I, I just uh, singled out a few to mention. There, there's something that I have to mention first because the fact that it exists is pretty extraordinary. It's a new recording, uh, the first complete recording uh, of Cole Porter's Something for the Boys, which uh, is a 1940s musical comedy that originally starred Ethel Merman. Um, and it has, against all odds, received a, a wonderful new recording from P.S. Classics, uh, produced by Tommy Krasker and uh, Bart Miggle. And the cast uh, includes Elizabeth Stanley, Danny Burstein, Andrea Burns, uh, Philip Chafin, Edward Hibbert, Sarah Jean Ford, and Kathy Callahan. And this is uh, a show that you, uh, I mean, you know, it's it's worth um, looking back on for the score, if not the book. Uh, the book is notoriously silly. Uh, the uh, it's it's famous or infamous for having the uh, the the major plot point be that uh, again it's set during the war uh, World mm-hmm. War Two and at one point the Merman character starts to intercept. Um, uh, uh, um, messages from the enemy uh, through her dental work, uh, <laughs> and, and so yes, uh, but uh, you know, I mean, that's what people remember it for. So I guess it worked uh, in that sense. But the score, uh, it's not top drawer. 
supporter, but it does have some really good songs, including the title song and um, uh, let's see, uh, He's a Right Guy. And there's a song called uh, By the Mississinawa, which uh, is, I guess you would many people would say is politically incorrect uh, nowadays, as in the style of I'm an Indian too from uh, Andy Get Your Gun. But it's, uh, it's, it's again, like a real time capsule. So that, um, you know, and I mean, first class production of this recording with a full orchestra, they, uh, they um, started it in 2013. They Mm. started recording uh, and they've, uh, and they've only now recently finished it and released it because of funding reasons, but, uh, but they got it out. So, I I mean, I think that that should be rewarded. Uh, In fact, it has two different conductors. uh, I think, I guess, because of Uh. the, the, uh, the time uh, span, Constantine Kitsopoulos, who I, I recently uh, mentioned, I, I heard uh, conduct the uh, Star Wars at, over at NJ Pack, and Greg Jarrett. And um, let's see, uh, uh, the orchestrations are by Hans Spialik, Robert Russell Bennett, Don Walker, and Ted Royal. Uh, and oh, and a new uh, overture was written for the show by John Baxendine because apparently the overture was lost uh, and they, they couldn't find it. Uh, but that so that's a really great thing that you should get your hands on. Also, I would recommend um, the studio recording of the city center production of Brigadoon, uh, which was, was really so beautiful, um, with Kelly O'Hara, Patrick Wilson, Stephanie J. Block. And, um, uh, I, I wanted to mention this, this other fellow who was in it, who didn't get that much publicity, uh, in the role of Charlie Dalrymple, we had a uh, Ross Lakites, I suppose that's how it's pronounced L E K I T E S. And I did want to mention him because he's, he's less well known than those other people we just just mentioned. Oh, Asif Mandvi was also in it. Uh, but Ross Lakites as Charlie Dalrymple does a really beautiful job with uh, with two songs. Uh, I'll go home with Bonnie Jean and Come to Me, Bend to Me. Uh, the latter of which I think is just really one of the most beautiful songs ever written for the musical theater. So that's something to get your hands on. Um, and then uh, I wanted to mention Jesus Christ Superstar. The uh, soundtrack of the TV uh, presentation, which I, I think it's fair to say is the most successful of all of those. Uh, well, uh, well, all of them except maybe the first one. Uh, the, uh-huh. the, the Sound of Music was it mm-hmm. was was um, ratings wise <laughs> was it mm-hmm. huge huge hit ratings uh, wise right. yes right. Uh, but Jesus Christ Superstar was a big hit ratings wise, and also I think in co- terms of quality, just really far better than all of the others and uh, was recognized with a, a Grammy for Outstanding Variety Special. Uh, um, I'm sorry, Emmy for Outstanding Variety Special uh, and uh, nominated for many Grammy Awards as well. And it really, um, I think the excitement of the recording uh, of the event really comes across on the recording. I'm not 100% sure if it is an actual live recording or if uh, it's uh, maybe like a rehearsal and they, they put the, the audience sound in. I, 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 I didn't actually see if that is specified. And even if it is, I'm not sure if it's true. But regardless, <laughs> um, it's, it sounds really, really great. And the show had you know several 
Broadway and theater people, and in, in addition to John Legend in the in the lead <laughs> as Jesus, we had Brandon Victor Dixon and Sarah Bareilles, Norm Lewis, and Jason Tam, um, who is in Be More Chill uh, with, now, which is another recording that I wanted to mention, and that's really interesting because, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, Be More Chill uh, became an internet sensation uh, and uh, uh, through downloads of the recording of the cast recording uh, of the production that was done at the Two River Theater in New Jersey. And uh, uh, that recording was made and that that production had its limited run. And I guess everyone thought maybe that was the end of it or, uh, you know, at least for the time being. But it became this huge sensation. And and now uh, just recently we saw an off-Broadway production of the show that is now moving to Broadway. Um, So that is uh, something to really uh, I, I think that's going to be a, a very uh, historic uh, item to to listen to, and and it's also interesting that it's um, one of the rare cases where uh, I, I'm not sure if they have plans to re-record it with the Broadway cast because at least two of the leads are different. One one of them being Jason Tam, uh, but uh, this is kind of like maybe similar to uh, the Oliver cast <laughs> album, the original cast recording, which because it was recorded pre Broadway, um, has uh, at least one of the leads uh, different than than the uh, what was the opening night cast on Broadway, uh, and there are, I think maybe a c- couple of other cases of that in in cast album history, but not too many of them. Uh, that's what we have here with Be More Chill. Uh, I was wondering if that would work against uh, the show because apparently all of these uh, young people are so so invested in this Two River cast album, and as I said, two of the leads are different, but it certainly didn't seem to work against the ticket sales in the off-Broadway production, which was completely sold out and you could not get a ticket. So, um, you know, hopefully for them, uh, this will translate to the Broadway production that's upcoming. All right. Um, in terms of something for the boys, uh, no, I have not heard this recording and I am certainly looking forward to it. And it is very valuable that it has happened because um, we've had two recordings on CD of this, um, but one is an abbreviated uh, version that's actually a transcription of a radio broadcast that Ethel Merman did. In those days, there used to be radio shows that emanated from New York, and as a result, they often brought in cast of Broadway shows to do little uh, cut-down versions of them so that people in the rest of the country could figure out what's going on on Broadway. Then there was a production done um, in in San Francisco at 42nd Street Moon. I believe I'm right about that. And uh, they made a cast album just with piano, but uh, a very, very entertaining um, album, and it was very valuable because uh, so many of us didn't know some of the songs from it, especially one of my favorite, Announcement of Inheritance. And that sets the show in motion where three women find out that they've um, come into some um, land uh, in Texas. And uh, that uh, is the first. And it's a terrific song, really very, very nicely done. And um, so uh, – but – 
this really does have a lot of wonderful Cole Porter songs in it. Uh, one of my favorites is Leader of a Big Time Band, which um, I first discovered in uh, a 1965 album called The Decline and Fall of the Entire World of Cole Porter. It's one of my Desert Island discs. It's a Ben Bagley recording. And um, I, uh, it was such a revelation to me to hear these songs that I hadn't heard from the 40s, uh, including Farming and uh, Making Another Old Fashioned Please and Giving the Ooh La La, all those songs. It was really wonderful. And to find out that Leader of the Big Time Band actually came from something that for the boys made me really hunger for it. Um, when My Baby Goes to Town is another song that's uh, certainly worth hearing. Uh, what's also interesting about something for the boys, as Ethan Morton points out in his magnificent book, Rogers and Hammerstein, that's the name of the book, uh, something for the boys was the last musical to open for Oklahoma. And he hmm. does c contrast it with Oklahoma, uh, the differences in that. And it shows you the advances the musical theater made. So in a way, um, something for the boys does finish a distant second. But it, the, it, Borden does manage to point out enough values in something for the boys to indicate that for its time, it really was a terrific show, but it was time to move on. Mm. And, uh, and so you will get a, a great deal of pleasure from listening to something for the boys. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that, that uh, that will happen. Uh, in terms of Brigadoon, it's really quite wonderful that uh, we do have yet another recording of it because, of course, uh, so many of the earlier recordings were terribly abridged in one way mm -hmm. or another. Yeah, That has been rectified, but nevertheless, having a, a full one, especially by a cast this strong, is really very impressive. As for Jesus Christ Superstar, my question, Michael, is did you listen to it on CD or did you listen to it on vinyl? Mm. Oh, I, uh, I <laughs> CD, but I'm aware that it's among the many, many, <laughs> many recordings that are now being issued on vinyl. I think that that whole renaissance is so fascinating. Yes, it is. And, uh, yeah, um, uh, we talk about Yiddish theater having a renaissance, and here's vinyl having a renaissance of sorts, <laughs> too. What's, what's most interesting to me is that uh, virtually every one of these releases, and recently, in addition to Jesus Christ Superstar Live, there was also The Secret Garden and Once in the Silent, the original cast albums of those shows. What's really interesting to me is that all of them two record sets and the reason they have to be two record sets is because when they were recorded in the cd era um they were longer than lps were lps uh basically can hold um an hour, an hour. yeah it, 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 that's that's usually about it and um and under those circumstances uh, once the cd era started of course they could go um, 10 15 minutes more maybe even a little longer than that and as a result uh, so they have to spread over two records and uh, that's so all of them have gatefolds, you know, which we used to love in the LP era, you know, opening up the and, and seeing the pictures and the extra uh, material in them. So so they're really handsome um, issues. And uh, I do think that uh, there are people who prefer the warmer sound of vinyl. And here's, and here's the chance to hear it. Well, you know, uh, it's yeah, I do find it fascinating. I've heard three theories for the resurgence of vinyl. One is, as you said, some people really do insists that the sound is better and that's you know so subjective so it's mm -hmm. that's fine if that's what they think um another is as you also mentioned that there's those wonderful large containers packages <laughs> uh you know uh, admit a larger photos and larger type <laughs> for the notes uh you know easier to read and, and they're they're more um uh just more attractive and, and more impressive in terms of the size. Uh, I mean, for just like 
for one example, I, I have in my head the the photos uh, that would appeared on the original soundtrack recordings of the Rodgers and Hammerstein movies, especially the Oklahoma, that beautiful photo of um, Gordon McRae and Shirley Jones uh, kind of riding into the sunset. Uh, uh, the, 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 you know, they just look so great when they're wearing mm-hmm. that in that large format. But then a third reason I heard, uh, have you guys heard this, is that, um, and not not only cast albums, obviously, but there uh, these vinyl records uh, that uh, younger people love them because of the interactivity of it, um, you know, of actually like picking up this analog disc and putting it on a turntable and then lifting the the tone arm and putting it on the record. It's so much more interactive than, uh, you know, the, this digital thing where you don't even you can't see the grooves, you can't see the numbers. You just put it in and you press, uh, you know, you, you press play and you you press forward and reverse or whatever. Uh, so I I, I, I think that's kind of great that there's a yearning for um, the old style interactivity with analog product. Yeah. But let me also point out <laughs> when yes. my parents gave me for Christmas the uh, cast album of Stop the World I Want to Get Off. I was so excited that I rushed over to the turntable and the little thing you put the the prong that you put it on um, scratched uh, everything from Lumbered all the way to Mal Yankee Mulch. Oh. So <laughs> I hadn't even heard the goddamn thing and uh, already there's a scratch in it. So uh, I don't miss the scratches at all, except, and I mean mm. this. I love hearing follies with the surface noise and the scratches because it reminds <laughs> me of the logo. I mean, somehow it sounds right. As Clive Barnes famously said about uh, follies that the original cast album should right. have been uh, released on 78s. Um, well, I'll take the 33 and the thirds. And um, I just like the snap crackles and pops that I hear when I listen to follies on vinyl. Yes. So uh, it's interesting you brought up the whole uh, people like to listen to vinyl uh, for the warmer feeling. And I understand that from a technology perspective for the older things that were recorded in analog. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, Jesus Christ Superstar was recorded digitally. They didn't they didn't have reel-to-reels there <laughs> recording right. it. Right, so that... So that, it's a digital-to-analog uh, sound, and certainly the vinyl has a little bit of a different timbre than a CD does, but it's still... This source material is still digital, so you don't have you know the the analog the analog feel. But maybe that's just me. We'll have to ask some of the uh, folks who uh, produce these things. See if we get Kurt Deutsch back on. Kurt's got some uh, big news with uh, producing his first Broadway sure show does. coming up. Yes, does um, announced this week. Uh, uh, what was the show? I forget off the top of my head. It was uh, Kurt and Kevin McCollum. McCollum, uh, McCollum, both, yes. Yeah. Uh, together. The, the, show, uh, the, the one that Becca Brunstetter is Yeah, uh, Rebecca Brunstetter. That's right. Um, so she's a terrific writer. Yeah. Uh, but so, be, uh, none of us can recall the show, but we can all the people attached to it. That's very interesting. Well, you know what? I, you know, I, 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 invest, I invest in people, <laughs> not ideas. So, <laughs> I mean, uh, certainly Kurt has uh, got a proven track record. Kevin McCollum's got a tr- track record. Rebecca Brunstad has got a uh, track record. So I'm excited that they are working together. I don't really I, – I can't remember. Off, like you said, off the top of my head, I can't remember what the project was. So um, 
We have a couple weeks ago uh, the Grammy nominations, the uh, the recording uh, industry uh, uh, awards, and in the uh, <laughs> category fifty eight. The Best Musical Theater Album for albums containing at least 51% of playing time of new recordings award to the principal vocalists and the album producers or of 51% or more of the playing time of the album. The lyricist and composers of a score of a new score are eligible for an award if they have written and or composed a new score for which comprises 51% or more playing time of the album. And the nominees are The Band's Visit. Uh, Carousel, Jesus Christ Superstar Live in Concert, My Fair Lady, and Once on This Island. Uh, so do we think, uh, do we think that this is a good representation of what was the best, uh, albums released in the last 12 months? I, I don't think it's, um, there are any, uh, major omissions, but what I will say is that, um, the people who vote for the Grammys don't tend to, um, follow, the uh, Tonys, uh, yeah. as a rule, mm-hmm. um, they, they're not swayed by that. So I wouldn't uh, put my money on the band's visit from uh, as as the winner, uh, even though I, I think it's the most significant of those albums because, of course, it's the one we hadn't had before in any uh, format. So that's very valuable to me. But um, I wouldn't be surprised if one of the others uh, does uh, wind up as the winner. I mean, Jesus Christ Superstar got such huge uh, pop culture coverage. Uh, I'm assuming that that is going to be in the running. Uh, probably out of this list, my favorite is probably the Once on This Island uh, mm. in this list. Um, and so we'll have to see. I think that the Grammys are coming up pretty soon. I, I do not know when the thing is. Hold on. Let's see. February 10th on CBS. Wow. CBS with the uh, tie-in with the Tony <laughs> Awards and hopefully right. continued Tony Awards tie-in. We do not yes. know what's going to happen there and the whole shakeout of what's happening over at CBS and mm-hmm. the constant complaints every year from CBS and the affiliates that the, the Tony Awards loses money, loses money, loses money and goes over time. Uh, but yet it was protected by the chair, by the CEO, Les Moonves, who was out at CBS now and uh, lost quite a payday. Uh, they had a $120 million severance package taken away from him and you know, at the end of the day, the lawyers are the only people that make the money. Mm. So, um, either way, the project that you could not think of is the Notebook. The Notebook, yeah, know, yes. I know it began with an N. Yeah, the Kurt Deutsch, Kevin McCollum project. Thank yes. you. Perfect. Yeah. So, uh, you talked about um, uh, Cole Porter's Something for the Boys is being put out by PS Classics. And I just wanted to throw in that a couple of weeks ago, I uh, we played an interview with you know, Philip Chafin, who's A and R, and Tommy's part, Tommy Krasny's partner over at uh, PS Classics. Um, and Philip's got a new album out called "Will He Like Me," where uh, he uh, it's a solo album where he picked, uh, you know, I think, ten of his favorite um, show tunes and uh, gave it a new arrangement, new take on it. So there's an interview in the uh, feed if you're interested in taking a listen to that. I mean, these companies, the PS Classics and the Ghostlight Records and uh, Masterworks Broadway and all the others, they um, they are keeping it alive for those who can't make it to New York. Even 
be keeping it alive for those of us who see the shows in New York and like to go and revisit them. Right. Yeah, and nobody can accuse <laughs> Philip Chaffin of uh, going safe with some of his song selections because who would expect that he would do charity soliloquy from yeah. Sweet Charity, considering that so many revivals drop it? Um, you know, right. so here he is, you know, uh, doing it. Another one that's uh, certainly very obscure is the title song from Man with a Load of Mischief. This was a late 60s off-Broadway musical. Terrific score by John Clifton. Terrific. Uh, there have even been two albums uh, made, ironically enough. The original off-Broadway cast album and then the York Theater presentation got an album as well. They're both wonderful. It is a sensational score. Uh, very period. Uh, very soprano. I, I say that to people who... Uh, um, tend to avoid those. But nevertheless, um, it's very impressive to see such songs. And also, not that it comes from a show, but uh, but from a movie, An Occasional Man, one of my all-time favorite songs, um, he does as well. And then uh, Windflowers, which is a pretty obscure song as well. Um, so uh, if, if you're really looking for something off the beaten track, and including, by the way, I should also mention Who Gave You Permission, the original opening song from Ballroom that was dropped as time went on, a decision a lot of people thought was a mistake. But uh, if you've never heard Who, G Who Gave You Permission, in which uh, B uh, is essentially speaking to her dead husband, saying, how could you leave me? Uh, this is the time to hear it. So uh, a very, very ambitious set of songs. So I have to ask uh, both of you, Michael and Peter, how large are your recording collections now it, it's it's become a a different thing now that much many things are digital we 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 who lived in new york city apartments used to have to set it had to really decide how much space <laughs> we were going to dedicate to our our recordings but now with digital it's less important but how michael and peter how many recordings do you think you have in your possession I can certainly say that um, I'm close to having at least one song from 3,000 shows. Um, I do keep a list of what I have, and so I, I, I do it by if if. But um, you know, it's probably more than that because, of course, um, three thousand shows means many recordings of Cabaret and Candide and Carousel and Chicago and Kiss Me Kate and even half a sixpence for that matter, and of course Gypsy. But um, no, uh, this place is pretty packed. Um, those those people who have been here have been pretty amazed um, at um, every little nook and cranny. Um, well, James, you've been here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you know what it looks like, uh, you know. So, uh, and so what anyway. again is what again is your line as people are preparing to enter your apartment for the first time? <laughs> I quote Julius Caesar, if you have tears, prepare to shed them now. Anyway, <laughs> so, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, frankly, I think all of our apartments look alike. But um, anyway, yeah, this is this is pretty packed. Um, I think I have room for like six more CDs and that's it. And yet... Whenever I think I can't find another space, somehow I manage to do it. So um, I, I applaud my resources. Uh, and uh, But yeah, I, I definitely have um, uh, representations of close to 3,000 shows and uh, more than uh, 2,200 plays in one form or another. Michael, how about you? I, ha I, I am not quite at that level. I would say I have several hundred uh, CDs. Uh, I think that both 
Peter and I uh, can't. Neither of us can hold a candle to Ken Bloom. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's the one I've seen. That's like an archive, you know, <laughs> uh, and that's great. Um, I it's certainly helped me uh, the uh, the digital thing because if it's uh, especially if it's a show that I'm not completely in love with, uh, I'm perfectly uh, happy to get just a digital download, uh, you know, kind of for the record and for the collection uh, rather than necessarily have the physical media. But uh, another problem with me uh, that, that makes it even worse is that I'm into opera. So uh, I have uh, I, I have my musical theater section, <clears throat> but then I have my opera section. And as we all know, operas uh, t- generally tend to be longer. And so almost all of them are at least two, if not three, sometimes four CDs. <laughs> and then on top of that, they tend to come in uh, packages that are even bulkier than that. So um, that that takes up a lot of space for me. And I, I have pretty much almost reached critical mass, but uh, I think I'll be okay because of digital downloads. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh... I um, I would say that musical theater is probably a fifth of my collection. Wow. Uh, most of my music is, um, you know, 70s, 80s uh, rock and uh, various other types of pop uh, and things like that. About a fifth of everything is, is musical theater, and I have about 10,000. Uh, <laughs> And but I uh, I wow. was uh, I was forced to digitize everything, and uh, I have it actually ten thousand CDs sitting to my left in a in a small little black box that's the size of a bread box with that holds uh, thirty terabytes of data. So it's it's much easier right now to portably move that stuff, but you need to back it up. Make, oh, sure, yeah. you, All make right. sure you back up your stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's the question. When you get up in the morning yeah. and you have all these recordings to choose from, how do you choose what you're going to listen to? Do you have something in your head already? Um, and now, this was a big dilemma for me. And uh, frankly, I would um, start looking alphabetically. And so as a result, I tend to play um, ambassador and applause a lot. And so <laughs> a few months ago, I decided, OK, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start listening to the shows of the 40s chronologically. And I had so much fun doing that. I went to the 50s and uh, I've now just started the 60s. But it's so interesting to see so many things that um, you didn't think of before. For example, um, I listened to, when I listened to Fiorello, I didn't listen to the cast album. I listened to the demo record that uh, Bach and Harnick made before the show went on the road. And so therefore, uh, Little Tin Box is not in it because that song is written on the road. Yeah, but here's the thing. I had always heard that Where Do I Go From Here, um, which is a beautiful, beautiful ballad, and I really recommend Liz Calloway's recording of it, which I think is sensational. Um, Where Do I Go From Here, a terrific ballad, was replaced by Marie's Law because George Abbott wanted something funnier. And so I always assumed they wrote that Philadelphia, but there it is on the demo. So obviously, Obviously, they had it ready to go um, and had both songs just in case uh, Mr. Abbott wanted one or the other. Um, Also, one of my friends, I'm not going to give his name. He may not want me to, but he uh, refers to uh, Donald Trump as the liar in chief. Okay. Now, what's interesting to me while listening to Green Willow the other day, there's that expression, liar in chief, uh, in a song called What a Blessing, which deals with the devil. And devil, um, uh, the um, minister in the show, uh, played by Cecil Calloway, who was 
a terrific, uh, rotund, uh, wonderful actor, um, refers to the devil as the liar in chief. And so I, I really recommend it. it, it certainly, I, I don't know if I'll live long enough to go all the way, but the thing is, I really recommend people doing this. If you really, um, it, it does answer the question, what am I going to play today? And I, I always remember in Terrence McNally's plays, the Lisbon Treviata, there's such discussion of <laughs> what the people are going to play that night when they're together. And, and I can still hear one of the characters say, 10,000 records, and we can't even decide on which one to play, you know? So, <laughs> um, and uh, so this answers a question. So I, I, I truly recommend that. And I also recommend doing what I've been doing is that is looking for alternate recordings. For example, yesterday was Bye Bye Birdie, and I played the London cast album rather than the Broadway cast album because I don't know that nearly as well. Mm-hmm. And um, so that that's fun too. Also to hear the little differences um, from a London to Broadway, for example, uh, in, in English teacher, Rosie sings uh, that you want to be Mrs. Phi Beta Kappa. And uh, in the English recording, she says, Mrs. College Professor, I guess there's no Phi Beta Kappa in London. Um, that's my guess since the lyric was changed. So um, I think that's really um, terrific to hear the differences uh, between London and um, American recordings. So, And so- we mentioned how uh, I, I just love this, how for the British production of She Loves Me, uh, Sheldon Harnick had to change all of the lyrics that have the word clerk because they don't pronounce it that way. They right. say Clark. <laughs> all, although it's, Lorenz Hart told us that anyone who pronounces Clark um, jark. is a jerk, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the, uh, the London production of Hamilton had changed a handful of references that they didn't think that uh, folks would <laughs> that are not Americans would get. Uh, everything... Um, uh, Weehawken. It was one something that quickly uh, comes to mind that, you know, nobody, there's a lot of jokes about Weehawken that quite truthfully people out of the tri-state area might not get. So <laughs> I wonder if uh, Hamilton will ever have a, uh, a cash recording and uh, news this week that Camel, uh, Camelton, Hamilton had a... Uh, Do you mean Spamilton? Spamilton. <laughs> Hamilton had a $4 million week on Broadway last week. And it begs the question, how much is enough? Mm-hmm. And speaking and speaking of Spamilton, that is now touring. So if you can't see one, you can see the other. <laughs> and it is touring near all wherever the Hamilton tour is touring. Uh, yes. So <laughs> it's it's almost uh, shadowing it uh, and and things along those along those lines. So wherever you can, if you can't get that Hamilton ticket, maybe you can find the Spamilton uh, close. So Peter, you talked about um, listening to the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Um, Maybe it would just be easier to go to uh, Scott Siegel's concerts. Well, I don't think it would be uh, as much as I like Scott Siegel's <laughs> concerts. I think but maybe, that takes more effort. Yeah, <laughs> maybe Scott Siegel is uh, is doing the same thing that you're doing. Uh, that he's listening to. Let me listen to 1953 sure. right now and pick sure, out. Sure, sure, sure. You yeah. know the uh, town hall concerts at uh, are they called year by year Broadway by the year? What are yeah, they Broadway called? Broadway by the year. Yeah. Broadway by the year. Uh, such great concerts and. Uh, 2018 was also a um, gave us a little bit of a scare when Scott had a little bicycle accident. Uh, but I've seen him at the theater a few times, and he seems to be every day walking with stronger step. 
Yes, oh, I, saw, I saw him just the other night as well uh, when I came out of Choir Boy. And indeed, um, you know, he is getting out there. He is seeing the shows, and uh, that's really good. And we certainly wish him as speedy a recovery as can be expected. It's yes. funny that you talk about, um, uh, you know, what do you listen to when you get up in the morning? Because I, I remember moments uh, when I, I was at I was a student at Penn State University, and my family lived in New York, and I lived. Uh, when I was going back and forth to and from uh, Penn State along Route 80, I would uh, estimate my time of arrival in two and a half Les Mis recordings. Ah. So <laughs> I was like, I think I, I think I can lift, listen to Symphonic twice. I can listen to the <laughs> London cast two and a half times before I got home and things like that. So <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I, w- I would, uh, yeah, on that note, I would recommend, uh, you know, Peter was talking earlier about f- foreign language productions, but then, of course, there are all of the foreign language recordings of musicals, some of which are absolutely fantastic. And one of the best, if this counts, is the original concept album of Les Mis in French. Yeah. I really urge anyone who loves Les Mis to listen to that album because the, it's so fascinating and it's got, of course, a you know, I, I guess you could say an authenticity uh, that the, the English doesn't quite have. And also for me, it's, it's better overall because each melody isn't repeated 12 times. They're more effective for that reason. But there are some other really great ones. There's, a, there is, um, I think, two Italian cast recordings of Promises, Promises. And the more recent one is absolutely fantastic. And then um, there is a, uh, as I think we probably mentioned, uh, there is a recording of Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish from the 60s for when that, translation was first prepared, which I believe is the same translation that's being used now in this new production. Uh, So I think I transferred that from LP to cassette years ago, and I think I still have the cassette. I have to see if I can dig that out and listen to that. I was just talking the other day. It's funny, Stop the World comes up again, because um, in Stop the World, I want to get off. Um, the American girl um, is um, – a little chap goes through a lot of women, and uh, one of them is an American. And she's not a, a terribly bright bulb, and um, to the point to which she says that she thinks Mr. Eisenhower is absolutely great. And the conductor has to tap his baton and inform her that it's now – President Kennedy, which it was in 1962. And um, as time went on, um, that whole sequence had to be changed after the Kennedy assassination. And when the Swedish album came out, I was very interested to hear um, how they were going to handle this. And the Swedish cast album, you know, there's all the Swedish words and then you hear Eisenhower, you know, and I thought, okay, what happens next? And you hear the tap, tap, tap. And then you hear a da 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 Johnson. So they just skip over Kennedy. Um, they just go from one to, to the next and uh, uh, make no reference to uh, Kennedy at all. Uh, and therefore, um, short circuits our feelings about the tragedy uh, that we don't have to deal with that. So that's kind of interesting as well. Hmm. So uh, cast recordings have meant a lot to the three of us, and I'm sure a lot to our listeners as well. Mm -hmm. So please uh, email us your thoughts about your favorite cast recordings, um, or talk to us at BroadwayCon next week, and uh, let us know if there's something that really was, uh, was great for you. I think that one of the classic questions whenever I get together in a group is we, we talk about, 
you know, what is your favorite recording of something Michael brings up that Les Mis has a number of different recordings and Jesus Christ Superstar has a number of different recordings, which is your favorite? And it always, it seems to come back to, for many people, the first one that they listen to. It's hard Absolutely. to hard Absolutely. to get away from, you know, and yes. along those lines, um, I, I, I listened to the uh, Linda Etter, um, Jekyll and Hyde, and I feel like, oh, that was such a, a much better recording than the... You're talking uh, about the very first one? Yeah. The uh, very, because, the, of course, I think she's been on all of them, aside from yeah, the Yeah, the very first, first concept, one. the um, concept right. recording the one of on Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think to myself, that was uh, so much better, and Jekyll and Hyde, big, huge shoe fans, going, no, 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 the Broadway <laughs> cast sure, recording sure, was sure, in this sure. Similar sure. to how how, um, you know, Grateful Dead fans that trade uh, live recordings, boot, uh, <laughs> the bootleg recordings for Grateful Dead, which were encouraged by the band uh, that created uh, quite a market for themselves uh, and the, as the band uh, traveled in the 60s and 70s. So it's a, it's a wonderful little subculture of recordings that uh, exist in the Broadway universe. So... All right, so that kind of wraps it up for the morning. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that we're at Broadway Con next week. Come see us. <laughs> um, you could subscribe to these broadcasts at, broad, at uh, broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us, Tuner, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as the links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter... What do we have for last week's trivia answer? Well, the question was, we know that Rod, Nikki, Brian, Christmas Eve, Kate, and Princeton all live on Avenue Q. But many moons earlier, what character from a very different musical was said to live one block over? Well, one block over means either Avenue P or Avenue R. And then Mac and Mabel, in Look What Happened to Mabel, one of my all-time favorite show songs, by the way, Mabel Norman refers to herself as Miss Avenue R is a regular star. So Ron Fassler was the only one to get it. But wait, wait, wait. Something I didn't know that Jed Slaughter pointed out. And Josh, I'm sorry. um, Josh, uh, Jed Slaughter pointed out that um, Rosie, a really Rosie fame, lives on Avenue P as well. (laughs) And Lamont Russell told me that as well. Now, Josh Israel, who I um, mentioned, um, also assumed that someone from Urinetown would live on Avenue (laughs) Uh, so <laughs> we here in, uh, in uh, you're in town. Get your mind out of the clouds. Uh, get your mind out of the gutter, Josh. <laughs> anyway, so uh, next week's question: In one of his films, Frank Sinatra sang a song that was nominated for an Academy Award. In it, he sang a certain word ten times, a word that just happens to be the name of a famous Broadway musical. What's more? The body of the song includes the words that just happen to be the title of the opening number of that same musical. First, probably the name of the song and the film itself, and then tell me the name of the musical and its opening number. All right. So if you know this, you can email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com or tell us at BroadwayCon next week. So, on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Yeah.